Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. Today's PCOS Diva podcast is sponsored by the seven-day Discover Your PCOS Diva Jumpstart program. Jumpstart is the place to begin when you're ready to commit to yourself and jump into your healing journey. Learn step-by-step how diet, lifestyle, and mindset changes can get you on the right path. You'll be thrilled to feel your energy return, brain fog lift, acne begin to clear, and so much more. Visit PCOSDiva.com slash jumpstart for more information and to get started today. If you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com. There I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a PCOS diva. Look for me on iTunes, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram as well. Today, I am going to welcome back one of what I think is she's really a a thought leader, a pioneer in women's hormone health. And I'm so excited to have her back on the PCOS Diva podcast. Welcome, Dr. Laura Bryden. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. We were just reminiscing about our previous interviews. This is my third time with you now, I think. And yeah, we go way back, which is nice. I know. (laughs) we We were talking about how when I was really searching for other experts who felt like the pill was not a therapy, a great therapy for PCOS, and there was other ways to manage it. You were one of the other voices out there 10 (laughs) 10 plus years ago, um, really talking about it. You were the first person that I think was really um, talking about types of PCOS based on what you were seeing in your practice. And you talked about that in your uh, I mean, I, it's really a groundbreaking book, uh, the period repair manual, and you are, you're a naturopath doctor. You're the best-selling author of now two books, <laughs> yep. the period repair manual and the brand new hormone repair manual. And they are really both practical guides for treating period problems, hormone, women's hormones with nutrition supplements and bioidentical hormones. And you, um, Although you studied in Canada, uh, you moved down under and you were in, I think when we first started um, chatting, you were in Sydney, Australia, but now you're in Christchurch, New Zealand, and you have a practice there where you treat women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, um, and you are really active on social media and have some (laughs) great social media your Instagram is fantastic. And, um, I learned so much from you. So I'm, I'm so glad that you're going to be here and I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot more today. Yeah. So I've been reading your hormone repair manual. Um, it's your brand new book out and it's really geared for women, um, over 40. Uh, as yep. we enter perimenopause and menopause. Uh, but if you're listening, I encourage, and you're younger than that, I encourage you to keep listening because you're going to get a lot of information that's going to be really important um, 
to sort of safeguard your your future um, and your future health. What you do now really makes a huge difference. Um, but I I wanted you to uh, first of all explain why you wrote this book, um, and I love how you frame um, this stage in a woman's life. So yeah. maybe you could share that with us. Sure. Similar to period of manual for me, the writing of this book was to fill what feels, what seemed like a gap in the information. Like obviously there are lots of books about menopause, but a lot of it seemed to be sort of perpetuating this idea that it all happens later. You know, menopause is in our fifties or something. It's off in the future when clinically and in the research, every place, we know that the process of perimenopause, which is the two to 12 years before the final period and the first year after the final period, that is when symptoms occur. So it's actually, by the time you get to early fifties, it's a lot of it's behind you. Like when women really need help is in their forties and even late thirties. So one of my messages is if you were born before 1984, you need to think about this book for you because it's <laughs> the changes start then. And you, you put it quite well. And you said, you know, preparing for it and stabilizing our health as we head into what I call second puberty can make the whole process a lot easier. It's a hormonal recalibration. It's not about aging. This is one of my key messages too. It's happening alongside aging, but perimenopause and menopause, the, the, the second puberty and the stopping of ovulation is not because of aging. You know, it's not like, you know, some women go through it earlier than others. It's not because they did something wrong and they aged more quickly. It's nothing about that. It's actually largely in our genetic blueprint as to when we're going to start to go through these changes. Where, as I explained in the book, I think we evolved to have menopause. It's not just an accident of living too long. It's something we do and it's important. It's an important life phase. Yeah. And, and just quickly share that your um, kind of anecdotal information about like hunter gatherer societies and yeah. the, role, the role like women this age play. It's a very important yeah, well, it's, role. It's not just anecdotal. Like, so this is in the research yeah. of existing, okay. the, few, the, the few forager groups that still exist in the world. Obviously there's mm -hmm. not many of them. And from that, we can try to infer what prehistorically might've been happening, but women in their 50s and 60s and even 70s in those groups are highly productive. So they're no longer reproductive. They've stopped having their own babies, but they are gathering a lot of food. They're doing a lot. They're holding it all together for the group. In fact, they gather more food per capita than any other demographic, which I love. I'm just imagining like they're, they're because they know what they're doing, right? Like they've got skills. So they're bringing in more food calories for the group than the young people, you know, than the teenagers or the certainly then reproductive women, because women of reproductive age are busy having babies and breastfeeding. And so they're looking after everyone. They're, they're bringing in more food than men of the same age. So I love that. And, you know, something about that, we all know women in that age group, you know, af into menopause, after perimenopause where they just get a lot of stuff done, right? Like even in our modern world, they just, they're running, you know, volunteer organizations or doing a PhD or traveling the world or like, there's just a lot going on. And I think we intuitively understand that. So that really flies against this idea that somehow it's the beginning of the end and, mm. you know, it's over now. That's completely the opposite. The other thing that you had mentioned is there's a lot of, um, 
symptoms in perimenopause uh, you get a lot that are driven by estrogen dominance, which seems to be the hot new hormonal topic these days. Everybody's writing about estrogen dominance, but, um, but it, that doesn't necessarily, the way that you feel right now, like if you are in that stage, doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it's always going to be. Exactly. So, yeah. so maybe you could speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. Symptoms are temporary. So that's, one of the, the most important messages in my book, I should talk about that mm -hmm. straight away in chapter one. This is temporary. This too shall pass. This is part of the recalibration process. It's second puberty, right? Like I give the analogy, when you watch kids go through first puberty and they're having skin breakouts and mood changes and you know they're, they're struggling a bit, you don't think, oh, that's how they're always going to be now, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to move through that. That's just part of the recalibration process. So yeah, that's definitely the case for perimenopause. And on the topic of estrogen dominance, because it's interesting, I don't actually use that term, although you know I certainly understand what is meant by mm -hmm. that. But it does speak to one of the other things I'm trying to get across is that especially the earlier phases of perimenopause, I talk about the four phases, but in phases one and two, estrogen is not lower than before. It's the opposite. It's higher. It's up to mm -hmm. three times higher than it was in women's 30s. So it's spiking up and down, it's fluctuating, it's the estrogen roller coaster. And when estrogen spikes up really high, it's quite stimulating, it can cause irritability and mood symptoms, but also it can cause a histamine or mast cell release, so or mast cell activation. So you get a lot of like headaches and rashes and hives and nasal congestion and things like that and heavier periods. Actually, a lot of that's from that whole estrogen histamine side of things that I describe in the book. And at the same time, of course, progesterone is quietly leaving the scene because the only way to make progesterone is to ovulate and ovulation becomes harder to do in second puberty. That's kind of the whole basis of it. We're just, we're starting to ovulate less often. And for some women, I mean, ovulation is always hard to do because of, you know, on a PCOS podcast, obviously, you know, being able to maintain regular ovulation is a challenge for other reasons as well, but it becomes even triply challenging during our forties. Yeah. And, and, um, thank you for reminding me. I just wanted to tell listeners that we, we did a, a podcast podcast number 80 on ovulation and PCOS. So right. dig in deeper. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a, um, a transcript for that as well. So, and then we, one of our, my very first podcast, <laughs> podcast number seven, we did one on healthy hormones and PCOS. Right, so, right. so yeah, check those out. Um, so when I started my PCOS diva journey, I, um, blogging about it, I had a, a baby and I remember uh, my baby girl. And I remember telling my husband, Oh my gosh, you're in for it because I'm look calculating it in my head. Cause I had her at 37 and she's 12 now. And she's starting to go through puberty and yep. we see the little mood swings and I'm going to be 50 this year. And, you know, I'm in the, the throes of yep. <laughs> perimenopause. I said, Oh, you're going to want to move out by then. <laughs> but, um, but I would love for you to, you know, I, and I know that every woman with PCOS, it's a, you know, a uni unique situation, um, but there's some, some common themes for women with PCOS as they enter this phase in life. And I was wondering if you could kind of go through some of those scenarios and maybe even share um, a story of one of your patients. Her name was Julie in the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So I'll just preface it. There's a few things 
going on in terms of the overlap between PCOS and perimenopause and menopause. And one is kind of a good thing. We were talking a little bit off air, how I have observed, and I think it's a little bit in the science that women who have that calibration to their hormonal system, that is PCOS, basically, you know, the longer cycles, the Mm -hmm. higher androgens, that picture, some of that's genetic, as you know, tend to, I would say on average, have a longer lasting fertility or potentially a later perimenopause menopause than women who are calibrated more normal. And I, I, I hate to use the word normally, but like, I, cause as I, you know, I think a lot of PCOS is partly this, um, just a slight different in, difference in calibration, but so some women might find they're going through, maybe going into perimenopause a bit later than their friends because of PCOS and actually cycles. Some women in their forties might say, wow, this is the most regular my cycles have ever been. I went from a long mm-hmm. cycle to now I'm having a 29 day cycle and their friends are having like 21 day cycles because mm-hmm. cycles shortens as we get our cycles shorten as we get older. So that's one piece of overlap. The other, there's a couple other things going on and then we'll talk about Julie's story. But one is that with, especially in the later phases of perimenopause, all of us, PCOS or not, experience a shift to insulin resistance. And that is something we just all need to be aware of. Obviously, if there's a background of insulin resistance already, then that is potentially going to be even more challenging. So it's not like, you know, you had insulin resistance when you were younger and you got that under control. And it's, it's always potentially going to be something you need to be thinking about and trying to optimize your insulin sensitivity, especially as you head into the later phases of perimenopause. And another area of overlap, which is related, is that with the later phases of perimenopause around the time of the final period, and just leading up to that, we get a shift to all of us to what I call in this book, testosterone dominance. So we do get a a lot more of the testosterone kind of shining through as our estrogen and progesterone drop away. And again, if you have a history of high-ish androgens, then that can become more pronounced. And that's all happening against the background. I have to acknowledge that for all of us, androgens are on a slowly, like slow decline. They're, they're going down through our life. Young women have more androgens than mm-hmm. older women. That's just, that's true, whether you have PCOS or not, but we do get this temporary little uptick in androgens. And then we get this kind of relative androgen picture, which would be testosterone in relation to estrogen and progesterone. And all of that can make PCOS and menopause look kind of similar in some ways. They're obviously different, different Mm -hmm. things, but there's some overlap. So, and I've seen that a lot with my patients. And then there can also be in the case of Julie's story, which is in chapter something of the book. I think I forget. Um, um, She, uh, yeah, chapter three. Yeah. This is chapter three where I'm talking about cycle while you can, the value of knowing that cycling is going to end, knowing that ovulation is going to end, but keeping it going for as long as you can. There's definitely benefits to that whole body benefits for her health. And in Julie's case, she was only 42 and her cycles had been kind of getting longer and then they disappeared for a while. And her doctor did an ultrasound and saw that she had a thickened uterine lining, which is quite, you know, classic with kind of PCOS at this point. And and her, but yet her FSH was normal. That's a test for menopause. So he said, well, it's not menopause because she was assuming she was in menopause. He said, it's not that. Of course, he said, I don't know what's going on. Take the pill. But she, in her case, I, I perceived, or I really felt that she had that PCOS picture that she'd had it all really all her life. It, you know, had not really been 
picked up on or described properly, but as she was moving into her forties, the insulin resistance had reached the point where it was strong enough to you know, stop her periods for a while. So in her case, what she had to do to get her periods back in her forties was to reverse insulin resistance and work on it that way. The interesting thing about Julie's case, certainly women in her forties, I can't remember. Yeah. She didn't have the classic polycystic ovary appearance because she's older, right? So, you know, I've, my view on, you know, the whole polycystic ovaries and PCOS is a very messed up kind of confusing term. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because young women tend to have more follicles. So tend younger women will often show up with so-called polycystic ovaries, even when they don't have PCOS Mm -hmm. conversely, older women can have a full blown, like androgen and ovulatory insulin resistance picture and not show polycystic ovaries. So, and that's why I think it's so important that you educate yourself. Um, I'm hearing from more women as they enter their forties that their doctors are telling them that, oh, now, um, I don't think you ever had PCOS because you don't have (laughs) cysts on your ovaries and it's so confusing. So it's really important that we, we kind of know what's going on and we can, um, you know, advocate for ourselves. So it's really still important at this age to, to manage insulin. And I know in Julie's case, she needed some, um, cyclical, uh, progesterone, natural progesterone therapy to, um, kind of help things along as well. Yeah. Well, one, one of the main reasons she needed that in her case, because of the thickened uterine lining, you've got to do something about that, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. So either they're often, you know, she was being offered the pill, women might, might be offered the hormonal IUD. That it is true that you can't go on and on with a uterine lining that is thickened like that. So the, the advantage of cyclic progesterone therapy is that it induces a bleed, but it also works to promote ovulation. So Amy, you know, I've, I probably sent it to you. I just published a peer-reviewed paper with Professor Geraldine Pryor, the Canadian endocrinology professor, about... We, we called it like the central and ovulatory aspect of PCOS and how that can be improved by cyclic progesterone therapy. So we can put that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to do that. And I think that that, to me, that is where, um, physicians need to be educated. I think <laughs> that there's just not enough knowledge about how to use progesterone to help women with PCOS. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess, I, how can you bridge that subject with your doctor? Um, you know, bring a copy of your paper to the doctor's office? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's a paper. There's also a protocol put together mm-hmm. by Professor Pryor for cyclic progesterone therapy for anovulatory cycles, for PCOS in particular. So in the book, in this, both books, but in particular, this hormone repair manual, as you know, I have sections called how to speak with your doctor mm-hmm. and a few you know, talking points uh, in hope, what I think is doctor speak to be able to communicate what you need. And one of them is, you know, this is protocol put together by an endocrinologist for PCOS with cyclic progesterone therapy, brand name Prometrium in the US or Eutrogestin in some other countries and say to the doctor, I'd like to try it for a few months. A lot of the time, a lot of the times when you're talking with a doctor, just as a tip, they don't necessarily need to be a hundred percent convinced that it's going to work. I mean, that's a, that's a high bar to clear, like, you know, convincing them it's going to work. They more, a lot of the time just need to know that it's safe to try. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like the, that there's some evidence that it's not going to be harmful. And so with progesterone, it's very safe. So that's part of it. It's like, I'd like to try this. You know, some women get results. It, it's, could I do this? And often if you're, if the doctor's skeptical, what you can then say is, look, you know what? I'll leave it with you for a couple of weeks. I'll come back for another appointment, give them some time to think about it and regroup and then have another second conversation. And often it will, that will go better that time. Oh, that's, that's good advice. Um, you know, a lot, it seems like doctors are more, uh, comfortable pro, uh, prescribing, um, synthetic progest like Provera, yeah. but yet they won't prescribe Prometrium. Which is crazy because just in terms of risk and safety, just very simply progestins, all progestins are associated with a slight increase in risk of breast cancer and progesterone is the opposite. Mm-hmm. It may help to decrease the risk. So just purely from a safety perspective, progesterone is a win. Now, potentially something else for your show notes, there is recently um, a presentation by the International Menopause Society. So th- this is more around menopause, but it would apply to anything that you're trying to use progesterone for. Differentiating, like a couple of scientists talking about how progesterone, the real hormone, is not the same thing as progestins. It's very distinct in its effect in the brains and the breast tissue. So that's another resource potentially. It's, it's quite long. I mean, it's a 30 minute um, presentation. So doctors may not necessarily want to watch all of that, but at least it's something to know that exists and is starting to make headway in terms of debunking this idea that pr- the progestins of hormonal birth control are the same thing as progesterone because they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, from, uh, I remember doing research on this eons ago and it was, um, Dr. John Lee was kind of the one that pioneered yeah. progesterone and didn't, um, Dr. Pryor has sort of picked up his, his torch. I would say way. she's been going along independently on all along. She's been doing it for 40 years, right? 40 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, so she's so. probably, but yeah, she would have overlapped with him. I've never okay. heard her. I've never heard her mention him. You know, she's okay. a, she's a primary, she's a research scientist. So yeah, but there's certainly other people that have been out there talking mm-hmm. about the value mm-hmm. of real progesterone. Yeah. So we, you kind of um, mentioned the importance of maintaining your cycles as long as you can, uh, but I just wanted to dive a little bit deeper into yeah. that. So why is that important? Because regular ovulation is how we make estrogen and progesterone, back to progesterone, really all mm-hmm. comes back to progesterone. And we benefit from those. There was actually just, um, oh, I'd have to find the research. I want to say British Medical Journal, but I'd have to fact check that. A recent um, study about how, they correlated lifespan with menstrual history and found that women who have a history of many years or decades of natural ovulatory menstrual cycles live longer. Now there could be lots of different reasons for that. So, you know, they weren't necessarily saying that's causation, but I would say there's a factor of causation Mm -hmm. in that, that, that having some getting under your belt, if you can, some decades potentially of regular ovulations, real menstrual cycles builds up metabolic reserve. And certainly in terms of bone density and health, that's going to then serve you well through all of your menopausal years, you know, the three Mm -hmm. or four decades that you spend after you finish menstruating. Mm -hmm. 
So I think I want to finish up with talking a little bit more about insulin resistance, um, because that is a huge factor for women with PCOS and it remains to be, um, you know, I think when, when, uh, there's this kind of a misnomer that PCOS goes away after your reproductive years are gone. Um, and in, in my mind and in it, your book, um, really solidified that for me is that it's so important to manage the insulin resistance over the course of the lifetime. I mean, that's really the key. Uh, and I would love for you to share some of your key tips on doing that. Yeah, I will do that. I'm just going to preface it with just a little part. One of the many times in the book that I talk about insulin resistance, but mm-hmm. one of them, I think the most important is the way maintaining good insulin sensitivity is good for the brain because we go through this major brain rewiring, brain recalibration, what I call an energy crisis in the brain with when, when we lose estrogen with the final phases of perimenopause, not lose it entirely, but when estrogen drops and that energy crisis or basically drop in metabolic energy in the brain can have long-term consequences. So it causes symptoms while it's happening and it can, if you don't kind of navigate that and get, basically your brain is having to switch from burning you know, not exclusively, but more burning glucose for energy to being able to burn more ketones for energy. This is something we have to do with menopause. And that's a lot harder to do if there's insulin resistance. And if you, if your brain can't gain that metabolic flexibility and ability to burn ketones, that could potentially in some situations, sounds scary, but anyway, set you down the path to dementia, Mm -hmm. right? There's a bit of research about that for some women, dementia begins in menopause. It doesn't manifest for 15 or 20 years later, but that's when it starts, starts with this energy crisis. So I'm just mentioning all this because the stakes are high, right? Like this is not just about abdominal weight gain and some of the other things. This is about your brain and other aspects of health that are affected by insulin resistance. So what are my top tips? Um, Well, the ones I talk about is First, you know, I want to start with reaching satiety. I just think that has to be the starting place. I give a patient story later in the book about step one with a lot of my patients is let's just get you feeling good. Like let's get you eating enough protein in particular, because protein is our primary appetite to feel full. Like none of this should be about suffering and feeling hungry all the time because you can't keep doing that. So I'm a big fan of a protein breakfast. This has been... Mm -hmm. Even I, even over the last 10 years, I've come to understand how effective that can be. So my general advice, especially if women want to interact, you know, interface it with a little bit of gentle intermittent fasting, this is my approach. You can tell me, Amy, whether you agree with this, but with my patients, especially in their forties and beyond, don't eat in the morning until you're hungry. Now I don't mean stretch that all the way through till the afternoon. Like, I mean, like you know, try to read your body, but by waiting till you're hungry, that means you have stomach enzymes happening. So you're going to be able to digest some protein. So let's say nine or 10 AM, something like that might be a pretty common and then eat protein. And like, by that, I do mean like meat, it could be eggs. That's a more typical protein breakfast, but it could be leftover meat or chicken or fish from the night before. There's no rule that says you can't have that for breakfast. I I loved your favorite breakfast. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And I give the example of my husband, like, he's like, 
can't remember the time in my life when I wasn't constantly making chicken soup for your breakfast. In fact, I had chicken soup this morning. So that's, yes, that's a, that's my favorite. Cause it's a bit, you know, lighter, I guess, to, to take yeah. it. We have less stomach acid in the morning than we do later in the day, mm-hmm. which is why a lot of women say, oh, I can't, I can't face protein in the morning. I guess I would say in answer to that, start with lighter protein. And maybe as you get healthier, you might find your stomach acid kicks in and you can actually take in some mm-hmm. protein. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a big believer in, um, intermittent fasting. I think I didn't even know that is what it was, but I just yeah. stop eating after dinner. And I, and as soon as I stopped the nighttime snacking yeah. and I would have that, you know, at least the, t- that 12 hour window, I noticed that my, um, I just became more balanced. I just yeah. felt like I ha- had more control over cravings. Um, and that, you know, obviously now is telling me my insulin resistance was improving. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I, and I, I, I agree that protein is really important. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit alarmed because I'm hearing from a lot of women that are really trying, you know, they're asking me if I have vegetarian meal plans, which I don't sell. <laughs> I only, I have meal plans. They do have meatless options. Um, but I am a believer that you need to have some animal protein in your diet uh, to keep hormones functioning well. And, uh, would love to know what your thoughts are on, on protein and vegan and vegetarianism and animal protein. Yeah. Oh, Amy. Oh, you just, you just opened the Pandora's box. I know, I know. I know. So, but we're going to, in about five minutes, we'll have some people hopefully not pressing stop on this, but they might Hmm. have to look. My background is I'm an evolutionary biologist so I do think, see things through that lens. Homo sapiens are omnivores. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to say it. Like our body is expecting to have animal protein, not just for protein, but for all the other accessory nutrients that brings along, including amino zinc, acids inclu- including and- taurine, which I talk about mm-hmm. as an amino acid. I talk about a lot in the book, choline, vitamin B6, B12, like the, our body is expecting to have those foods. Animal foods are very nutrient dense. I... I just don't know what to say. Like my clinical experience is, this is my clinical experience. I talk a little bit about it in the book, but very often when people first go on a vegan diet, they feel great because they've stopped dairy, Mm -hmm. basically, period. And I, you know, I would argue you could get the same benefits by just stopping dairy or stopping A1 dairy, but then, and they might feel great for a while. They get a honeymoon period, but six, 12, 18 months into it. And there are problems. Like what I say truly hand on heart when I'm with patients, if they tell me they're vegan, I feel a little drop in my heart. I'm like, I I say to them, okay, well, I've just had to lower my expectations of how healthy you can be. Like Mm -hmm. we've now hit a limit as to what's possible here. And I know that goes against, I know there's people out there saying how they're thriving long-term on a vegan diet. All I can tell you is I've never seen them in my practice which could be because they don't come to see me, which is fine. They're so healthy. They don't even need me, which I guess I have to allow as a possibility, but I have talked to thousands of women over the years and I've never seen someone on an exclusively plant-based diet that was doing well. Well, what's interesting, like I've been in this PCOS space for so long now that I've seen so many different 
coaches and folks kind of come and go. And there have been some vegan PCOS folks out there um, and they're not around anymore. No, that's <laughs> and interesting, I, I remember, yeah. I remember <laughs> talking to one and she said, Oh, I just couldn't do it. I'm, yeah. I'm not a vegan anymore, but, but that's interesting. And, and in the show notes, we'll also put um, a link to an article that you wrote several years ago for PCOS yeah. Steva about A1 casein and, and the right. inflammatory issues with it. So um, if you want to read more about that, check out the show yeah. notes. For sure. Yep. Um, so yeah, intermittent fasting, more protein. I think sleep is so important and yep. getting good quality sleep and um, reducing stress, which you talk about in your book and how yeah. important that is to for women. For sure. Maintaining healthy gut. I think you better said that already, mm-hmm. but the gut microbiome plays a role mm-hmm. in insulin resistance, mm-hmm. which is where some of the argument for, you know, plant-based foods are beneficial for the microbiome. So that's kind of where some of that comes in, but we also need then the animal-based foods for the mm-hmm. nutritional. And I guess the other thing around insulin resistance, I don't feel like we can leave the topic without me saying after all of those things, after, you know, protein for satiety and, and helping circadian rhythm, we didn't mention, but all of those things and feeling good. And then really at some point there has to be identifying and addressing a sugar problem Mm. because it's not the only thing that's going on with insulin resistance, but high dose fructose. And I'm talking about in the form of sweet drinks and desserts, like proper, like dessert foods. I'm definitely not I'm 100% not saying that fruit is bad, you know, whole fruit is okay, but fruit juice and soft drinks and, you know, pop and, and co- cocktails, yes, cocktails and ice cream and, mm-hmm. you know, brownies and date squares. And you know, that is, even if it's a natural, so-called natural sugar, I guess my view is if it's a lot of it, and if it's high dose fructose, that is going to make it harder to reverse insulin mm-hmm. resistance. Yeah. And you have, you have some nice um, thoughts on how to manage sugar cravings in your book. It's, it's really a dense book. There's 300 <laughs> pages of pure content. Um, it, it's, it's excellent. Um, and again, I, I really highly recommend it, not just women that are, um, over 40, but really yeah. if, if you're, if you're, you're a younger woman as well, it, it's important to know how you can safeguard your health. I, I do feel like I'm blessed that I started my journey early in my thirties on kind of switching yeah. to a healthier lifestyle because, um, you know, I'm, I'm so much better off now in this phase of life. Um, For sure. it, it's been an, an investment in me that, which, um, I'm so glad I made. <laughs> it's a really good way to think about it. But yeah, the healthier you are heading into perimenopause, the easier it's going to be. Um, so I just wanted to ask you to tell listeners again, like where, where we can find you. Um, yeah. How can women learn more about your work? For sure. I'm easy to find. So as we've said, my two books are Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. Period repair manual is for any age, hormone repair manual for, I'll say 35 and up. 30, um, then on my blog is larabryden.com, which is now, yeah, we were just talking about it's 10 or 11 years old. You know, mm-hmm. you, you read some of my blog posts a decade ago, which is just crazy to think about. Um, all my social media is at, at Lara Bryden. So I'm 
pretty easy that way. Uh, well, you are a busy lady these days. <laughs> so I'm so grateful you took the time to uh, come on the show and, and yeah. share your wisdom with us. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. I look forward to being with you again soon. Bye-bye. that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on the PCOS Diva podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes because I love to hear from you. If you think someone else might benefit from this free podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend or family member so she can benefit from it too. And don't forget to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Just enter your email at PCOSDiva.com to get instant access and make sure you never miss a future podcast. This is Amy Medling wishing you good health. Bye-bye.